You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture? Freaky films and why we freaking love them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up and join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia and other fantasy worlds. It's going to be a wild ride. This time we're looking at Point Blank, a slice of existential neo-noir from 1967, directed by John Borman. It stars Lee Marvin as the enigmatic Walker, Angie Dickinson as Chris, Keenan Wynn as Joost, John Vernon as Mal Reese, and Sharon Acker as Lynn. So tell me, Gary, what's the haps in Point Blank? Okay, well, the movie begins with a heist as Walker and his compadre Mal Reese and his wife, Lynn, uh, rob a courier delivering mob money to Alcatraz Prison. Uh, which is not uh, a working prison at that point. When the heist is successful, Reese shoots Walker, grabs the cash and Walker's wife Lynn and leaves Walker for dead. Except Walker doesn't die. He escapes, he makes a mysterious full recovery and sets off to LA to get revenge with the aid of a man called Yost who pops up out of the blue every now and again offering vital information because, he says, he wants to bring down the crime syndicate that Reese is now part of. As Walker single-mindedly terminates his way past anyone in his way, Walker watches his wife commit suicide and seems much more interested in the $93,000 he is owed than revenge on Lynn or Reese. He co-ops Lynn's sister Chris to help him track down Reese, and despite the fact that Chris is Angie Dickinson, resists the predictable love interest portion of the movie, Chris minds this, Walker does not. Lindsay, <laughs> what's wrong with this picture? I think this picture is just... A, a marvel of oddity from from start to finish. It's it's absolutely great. It's it's a very mysterious film. So Walker has no first name. Mm-hmm. He has no backstory. Mm-hmm. It's not entirely clear whether the events in this film are actually happening. Mm-hmm. Whether he's dreamed them. Whether it's the dying kind of dream of a of a of a of a dying man, I should say, or a dead man. Yeah. Um. It's he's a blank. It's called point blank for a reason. He is an absolute blank. He's uh, he's unstoppable, a bit like the Terminator. Yep. He just kind of carries on. Um, he's asked at one point, I know this is your favourite bit, and it's like, but but what do you want? And he's just so puzzled. He's like, I want my money. Yeah. So, <laughs> Funny this is, this is This is his kind of ongoing quest throughout this film is to try and track down who's got his money yeah. and how he, can, how he can get it back. He's... Uh, he can certainly meet out violence, and although people die in this film, I don't know if you've noticed, he doesn't actually kill anyone himself. It's very deliberate. His actions kind Lead of result in death. their deaths, but he doesn't actually kill anybody. So his wife commits suicide, uh, someone else falls off a balcony, yep. someone else gets shot by his own man Yeah, uh, kind of later yep. on in the film. And so although Walker is involved in all these deaths, he doesn't actually cause any of them. Yeah. I think as well, do you want to go? Sorry. I'm no, well, no, 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 you're, you're, you're doing a great job. But it's, um, I mean, I'll, I'll put my, pin my colours to the mast earlier. It's one of my favourite, favourite films of all time. Um, I watch it, I don't know, probably once a year and have done since I first saw it 
kind of 15 years ago or so. And um, it's, it's a really fascinating... You mentioned existentialist neo-noir. So I thought we might have a bit of scene setting of that. Um, a lot of times when critics are talking about noir and neo-noir and film noir and whatever, they mention existentialism, existentialism. So I thought I'd actually look up a diary, a dictionary definition sure. of existentialism. A modern philosophical movement stressing the importance of personal experience and responsibility and the demands that they make on the individual who is seen as a free agent in a deterministic and seemingly meaningless universe. Wow, that's point blank. It's just as point blank. It, that's it, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So it's a kind of idea that, first of all, God is dead. You know, we we forget all this stuff about you know we go to heaven or we go yeah. to hell or, or any or there's any kind of other being uh, determining your will. There is only your free will. Yeah. And the second thing is, it can be the most nihilistic idea in the world. I well, nothing matters then, so I may as well be a killer or yeah. whatever. Or it can be the most idealistic thing in the world, which is I have to take responsibility for everything yeah. I do and choose for myself what is good and what is evil. One of the fantastic things about Point Blank is that you feel this sense of relentless mission, but even as you're watching the film, you're really thinking, but a mission for what? Yeah. And it, it's what seems like a, a perfect and simple thriller setup. He's been betrayed by his best yeah. friend and his wife. He would want revenge. Yeah. That's dispensed with relatively early. And, he, you know, he, he's this is not his mission, apparently. he's. It, this is not something that happens at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, his wife and his best friend are dead and he just continues going and you're going, and he and you and the audience and the characters are going to where? Yeah. Going to yeah. what? For what purpose? And it's really a montage in a way or a compilation, not a montage, of astonishing scenes. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, why I love it as well, quite apart from Lee Marvin, who who will come on to, who's mm. just the, the the heart and bones and guts and mm. flora and fauna of this movie. He's everything in it. He's everything to it. Yeah. Uh, is is how much it messes with your head in terms of time. Mm. So mm. this 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 initial scene happens where he's left for dead. We don't know how he gets off Alcatraz because the next thing we see, he's on a kind of tourist boat trip yep. to Alcatraz. And there's one of these recorded tourist history yep. lessons going on in the background. And this this is is this is like this was an escape proof island. Nobody could escape off this. Yeah. Some people tried to escape and they were drowned. Some people tried to escape but they were caught. Some people did this. All the way along you're being told it's impossible to escape from this island. And yet we're looking at a man who has done this at some point in the past. Yeah, really easily, apparently. Yes, yeah. And um, after being shot. And after being shot and <laughs> left for dead. So yeah. he has been seriously wounded. Um, it really messes with time. So you're kind of like, well, how much time has passed? And at one point his wife says to him, or somebody says to him, that heist happened a year ago. Mm. And he seems a little surprised by this, as are we, because mm. what's he been doing in the meantime? So we find out nothing about him before the first scene on Alcatraz. We find out nothing about him between that time on Alcatraz and now he's on his, his quest for revenge and for his money. So so what's happened? Mm. And he talks to his w wife and he said uh, the wife says that the, the, the best friend left three months ago mm. and nothing quite adds up in terms of time. Mm. And this is, 
I think, really undercut with how the film is made. So there are there are cuts all the time between two different things mm. happening, or sometimes the same thing happening at different times. Yeah. So something will take place in the film. Literally five minutes later, we're getting a flashback, a slow motion flashback to what we just saw five minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really messing with it with the idea of time. He he beats somebody up and that's intercut with a flashback of him beating somebody else up. Yeah. And you're kind of like, well, what do these scenes have to do with each other? And all of this cutting, all of this kind of mystery in, in how the film's edited, how it's mm, shot, mm. Um, how it's put together is just lends that kind of oniric, that, that dream dreamlike yeah, quality yeah, to absolutely. it. We've all had those dreams where you go through one door and you're in somewhere totally different. Yeah. It seems like every time he goes through a door, he's somewhere he doesn't necessarily expect yeah. to be. And this is completely... You know, there's a scene um, which is essentially um, he walks into uh, his wife's bedroom um, and she has killed herself with an overdose of pills. Uh, he then um, comes out of the room. Um, she She's put all her perfume... I can't remember, is it him or she emptied all her various um, cosmetic products down a sink and there's mm -hmm. this whole kind of beautiful image of yeah. essentially her essence slipping mm -hmm. away yeah. down a, down a plug these, hole. It's all these bath oils, these but, different colored bath oils that are yeah. just swirling together. But one of the most fascinating things about that scene is... He walks into a room and he's wearing one suit. He walks <gasps> through the door. He's wearing a different suit. What? He walks back into the room. Her body isn't there anymore. And there's a cat sitting there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely kind of... So that you've caught that thing about you know, the generic sensibility. It's, and why so many people... Um, so many of the you know top critics and, and people discussing the film, loving the film, have said... I believe that he's dead at the beginning yeah. and that this is the life flashing in front of his eyes. Yeah. That this is the revenge dream that yeah. he's having, but he's actually dead. And uh, when John Borman, there's a really excellent commentary on the Blu-ray version of this that I've got, um, which is John Borman himself, the director, and Steven Soderbergh, uh, director of Sex, Lies and Videotape and The Limey and various other excellent films. And... Um, you know, he, he, Soderbergh asks him directly, you know, okay, is is this theory that this is all a dying man's dream? Is this what, what it is? And John Borman is, when I ask, ask people, ask me that question, I say the same thing. What you see on the screen is what it is. <laughs> That's it. But what he does say, and I think this is a really interesting way of framing it and gives us a chance to talk about the man, is... He believes, in the end, John Borman, that this film is about Lee Marvin. Yeah. It's about Lee Marvin, the lead actor. And that Lee Marvin, um, he was a war... Well, he fought in the Second World War and had terrible experiences in the Second World War. I think he was a prisoner of war. And it, it left him, despite the fact that yeah, he came out and he became this very successful actor and a movie star, um, that he... He was a brutalised person, an abused person who was haunted by what had happened to him and often resolved his problems with violence in real life. Really? Um, and that Lee Marvin had got hold of this script. Um, he basically both, he'd approached John Borman. He'd never seen the first film that John Borman made. So it wasn't a case of, 
I've which, seen which was well that was Catch Us If You Can right um, and it was a vehicle for the Dave Clark <gasps> Five my god yeah I do know that one yeah and uh, that's a fascinating story in itself I think it was 1965 that film came out and it was his first ever feature film John Boorman British director and um, he basically was fascinated at that point with the French New Wave in particular mm-hmm. you know and so he took this daft pop group uh, the Dave Clark Five were probably, strangely, the third biggest band of the British invasion in the 60s, <laughs> i.e. the Beatles, the Stones, Stones. the Dave Clark Five, yeah. in terms of actual units shifted and popularity. Yeah. And what were the, like, their big hits? Just um, Glad All Over, oh, Bits yeah, and yeah. Pieces. Oh, yeah, yeah. Got you, got you. And they were really massive in America yeah. for a couple of years. Uh, so... Basically, he was he was asked to make help. It was the Beatles' second yeah. movie. It was a complete pastiche of that, you know, and in the same way the Monkeys TV show yeah, was yeah. a complete pastiche of that. And what he did with it was just bizarre. He, It starts off in this very help-like fashion and then becomes this very discursive meditation involving a girl and running away and to the beach and... and you know, sort of staring off into the middle distance, being depressed. And it a very, very odd and very, very influenced by the likes of Alain René and Jean-Luc Goddard. You, <laughs> couldn't, you could not miss it. And that got incredible rave reviews from the Pauline Chaos at this point. Right, right. It's the like, big film critics. Yeah, it was like, this should be a really dumb film uh, about a really dumb yeah, pop group. Yeah. And instead, this is kind of bordering on a work of genius. But Lee Marvin didn't know any of this. right. He just literally somebody had said to him, "Oh, there's this guy, John Borman, you know," um, mm-hmm. and he'd introduced him at a party, and he they got on, they start to yeah. talk, they start to go on, and and he sort of went, "I've got this script, it's rubbish, yeah, but there's something about the character, yeah. the lead character in it." So Borman looked at it and went, "I agree with you, the script is nonsense. Mm-hmm. We should throw it in the bin and rewrite it." But there's something about this lead character, and from that. Um, Lee Marvin was really the main driver of yeah. this movie, uh, rather than this very young, inexperienced director. And um, and John Borman believes that in the end, the script they came up with, the screenplay they came up with, was Lee Marvin. It was Lee Marvin looking for his purpose in life. Lee Marvin dealing with the fact that he is a brutalized, abused yeah. person who, with a violent, violent, angry temper who was directionless and aimless right. in life. Wow. And it's just kind of this extraordinary thriller based out of yeah. that sensibility. Well, would would that every uh, actor who had a kind of, let's make this film all about me, had the same kind of approach and success. Absolutely. Because this film is absolutely utter genius. Absolutely. I love it. I, I think um, the, the, the character actually comes from, it's a character called Parker, uh, and Donald E. Westlake, who is a thriller writer mm. under the name of Richard Stark, mm. uh, wrote this character Parker, and he actually wrote twenty-four novels about him. So the first one is called The Hunter, and that's very much what um, Point Blank is is based on. Yeah, uh, it was remade by uh, Mel Gibson uh, in a film called Payback. But the joke was that you know the script that they threw out the window. Mel Gibson was walking around, picked up this shit script and made <laughs> and made that one. That's exactly spot on. That's exactly spot but, on. But um, so in the in the in the books, the character is called Parker, but somebody says at some point, "Oh yeah, his name's Archer or Walker or something like that." So um, Richard Stark, Donald Westlake had said, "Yes, you can make this film, uh, The Hunter, 
But you can't call him Parker unless you intend it to be a series of films because this is a series of novels. Mm. And they're like, well, we only want the one, so we'll change the name to to, to Walker. Um, there is a film called Parker, which is based on another one of the, the, the <laughs> wow. stories, yep. uh, which stars Jason Statham and apparently is, oh. is kind of also quite true to the novels. Oh. But the novels have, they've been made uh, in various ways. Jean-Luc Godard made one and it stars Anna Karina, and I think it's called Made in the USA, and it's it's really? based on one of the Richard Stark Parker stories. Wow. So it, this this character has had a lot of legs, um, and Point Blank I don't think was even the first one, but it's certainly I think the the the, the biggest one. Every uh, offence to uh, Mel Gibson, but, yeah. <laughs> but none to Jason Statham, who is just no. Awful. We we like Jason Statham. <laughs> we don't like Mel Gibson. No. So uh, I think one of the, the things that, okay, well, let's let's talk. So we're sticking with weird, but, and we're going to finish the plot out of it a bit and yeah. we're going to go on to what's wonderful and we've still got a lot on what's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I do want to accentuate that my favourite scene in this film is possibly the weirdest scene. It is the nightclub scene. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to describe how extraordinary this is, but basically in his pursuit of, the bad guys, uh, Lee Marvin has to turn up to this nightclub. You're, you're hit. The first thing you're hit with is this astonishing music. Um, it is by uh, the Stu Gardner trio. Uh, and the guy who is in the nightclub performing it is Stu Gardner. And oh, yeah. yeah, so he and it, he comes out of it's so beautifully shot. There's this kind of the idea is this nightclub has a kind of things projected onto a big screen yeah and the way Borman frames it is that there's a picture on the big screen of a woman's open mouth and right Stu Gardner is singing out of her open mouth <laughs> and performing out of her open mouth I it is that. startling and it's kind of what the hell is going on and at the same time is this music and this music is like if you took all of James Brown's career Funk, as a funk yeah. and sort of distilled it into two chords and screaming <laughs> it's this song it's 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 i i for me it's one of my favorite pieces of music honestly it really is it's it, i know you hate funk Lindsay. so you're probably sitting there going okay great scene uh could do that the music but <laughs> but for me it's just i'm open-mouthed every time i see it i i just never get over it 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 and he comes, he sort of, Stu Gardner himself sides, sort of side dances because he can dance as well as James Brown. And he kind of comes out from behind the screen and then basically is performing this song in this nightclub. The thing is, the contrast is, you know, this is not like some black nightclub. This is full of white, yeah. middle-aged people. Yeah. And his shtick is to kind of come off the screen and all he's doing, uh, off the stage, and all he's doing is screaming. And he's like putting the microphone in the, the audience's yeah. faces and, and sort getting of them to getting them to do the scream call yeah. and response. And of course they can't. So he does this amazing little <laughs> Richard James Brown scream and they're like, oh, <laughs> and it's just funny and genius and brilliant. And somehow Lee Marvin and another character who only turns up for about 15 seconds have a conversation in the midst of this. And then the next thing, Lee Marvin's gone straight up the, on the stage through the backstage, past the go-go yeah. dancer, and has got in the middle of a fist fight. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of the most brutal fist fights yeah. ever. The fights, 
The fight scenes are fantastic. You know, this isn't kung fu, um, and it definitely isn't the old style. Oh, somebody swings yeah. a haymaker, and then yeah. you hear a click, and then they go flying yeah. over. This is a fight that looks like a fight. Yeah. Uh, at one point, uh, Lee Marvin smashes a guy in the ghoulies with his fist. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, that's, that, right. that's that's how it, you know another guy is literally punching Lee Marvin until he's virtually unconscious, um, and it's absolutely brutal. <laughs> and um, and all of this with this incredible churning two chord funk underneath it, yeah, <laughs> and the lights flashing, and then it ends. Um, the the fight ends, and Lee Marvin's kind of won the fight. Uh, and I'm going to keep saying Lee Marvin because you know Walker Lee Marvin yeah, yeah, Lee Marvin okay. Walker. And there's this stunning last shot of him slipping into the shadows with this kaleidoscopic yeah. kind of projection across his face, which is coming from the nightclub, yeah. and it's just. Oh my it is god! A great scene. If I had directed something that looked and sounded like that, I just—that's it. I'd die. I just go. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. thanks everyone. There I'm you out. go. I'm out. <laughs> While I'm ahead, except this guy, in a couple yeah. of films' time, was doing Deliverance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a—we'll leave that to yeah. another day. Yeah. But this is how good John Borman was. Yeah, uh, is and um, you know he actually uh, was knighted um, in January this year oh, for really? services to film. Wow. Um, yeah. So. Um, uh, the interesting thing about John Borman, while we're just talking about John Borman, because I do have to mention this, obviously, that it's this incredible run, Catch Me If You Can, Point Blank, uh, Hell in the Pacific, which was also Lee Marvin, yeah, a Lee yeah. Marvin two-hander about um, sort of a war, an anti-war film, basically, and Deliverance. Um, in 1977, <laughs> he made Exorcist to the Heretic. Mm. Now, if those of you who know your film know that this is often cited as the worst film ever made. Oh. And everybody's got one in them though, don't they? Everybody's got one in them, but this was a doozy. If honestly, Lindsay, have you ever seen it? Exorcist I don't think I have, two? no. If if it isn't being called the worst film ever made, then Richard Burton's performance in it is often called the oh, worst. Oh, the one with Richard Burton, I have seen that. He is it's awful. just <laughs> it's just it it's honestly you can't understand how John Borman watched the original and, and got this out of it. it it is appalling and um but you know he came back he did other stuff he um was oscar nominated i think for hope and glory oh yeah which was very much of a sort of autumn sort of autobiographical film about britain in the war um and you know he, he he continued and you know he had his he had his disaster and he got past it yeah but um but yeah it, this film is it somehow managed to be a cross between an old school film noir and a 1960s rock and roll film. Yeah. And I don't quite know how yeah. it pulls that off. Yeah. And and actually, I, you know, if someone said to me, what's the best John John Berman film? I, I don't know. I love Deliverance. Oh, it's tough. I love this one. It's tough. It is. And you had a comparison earlier. We were talking about these films about what you think the nearest uh, other film is to Point Blank and it's... Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. we were talking about Get Carter, weren't we? Yeah. Which is a, yeah. a British film starring uh, Michael Caine by Mike Figgis? Mike Hodges. Mike Hodges. Yeah. Mike Hodges, yeah, yeah. not Mike Figgis. Mike Hodges. Um, a similar kind of guy goes back for revenge, but with a very kind of British and, and, and Michael Caine take on it. And it, it, there's one of my favourite lines where he's talking to that guy... Is his name Brian Roberts, the one who was in Coronation Street? Street. And and they they start to have a fight. And Michael Caine says to him, You're a big man, but you're out of shape. I do this for a living. And then, like, proceeds to (laughs) beat him up. up. (laughs) But how it's different from um, Point Blank is 
Lee Marvin barely says anything. Yeah. And he doesn't need to because yeah. he's big. He's, uh, I mentioned he's like the Terminator. He just seems to have this unstoppable force yeah. of like, I am going to get what I came for. Yeah. So he doesn't need to say, I do this for a living. It is clear he does this for a living. Yeah. And it's clear yeah. that, I mean, he's he's also a bit, I think like the, 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 the shark in Jaws, there is that kind of never stopping. Yeah. And that's also very dreamlike because he doesn't appear to have a car yeah. and yet he gets yeah. places. <laughs> yep. There's this one one guy would, he's he, after. He's going between LA and San Francisco, and it's just done in a jump cut. Yeah, you know, yeah. He, Don Borman cannot be bothered to show yeah, you how he yeah. got from LA to San Francisco and back. Yeah, yeah. whereas actually a lot of um, in Get Carter, a lot of it is the journey. Traveling. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, so in this one, one of the guys that he's he's got to get to and through and past is in this impregnable uh, <laughs> kind of penthouse. Yeah. And he manages that, and admittedly, with Angie Dickinson's help yes. as 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 yes. Chris, and he kind of uses her as a kind of honey trap, really, yes. to try and yeah. to try and um, kind of affect his his entrance. And maybe it's a bit time to to talk about her. I don't think it's the most written up part in the world. No, no, but it is an interesting story. Again, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm drawing this from the the, the commentary um, on the Blu-ray version, but. Um, Lee Marvin and Angie Dickinson appeared together in a remake, um, and presumably not a terribly successful one, of the film noir classic The Killers, um, which had, wasn't made many years after the original The Killers. Um, so I'm not quite sure what the point and purpose was. But these t- two did not get along. Um, yeah. But Lee Marvin specifically wanted her for this part. And um, apparently they didn't get along because at one point there was a scene where in The Killers where he'd had to dangle her out of a window yeah. or something and apparently he was not gentle. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and she's, she hated him. So is, there is this scene um, after the honey trap thing. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I've, I've got to do the last bit of plot, but it's going to be very short anyway. Yeah. But uh, suffice to say, they are together again um, after uh, Reese is dead, and they are in a flat together. And this scene become starts with her beating him up. Um, I mean, she is slapping him around, she is smacking him, she is hitting him in the chest. And yeah, okay, this isn't kick ass. You know, we're not mm. talking. You know, post Ripley kick yeah. ass here. So she, you could say, she's hitting him like a girl, but she's hitting him. And, you know, the whole thing is that he's completely impassive. He, yeah. does, he doesn't fight back. He just takes it. Then um, she, I think it's her that runs off to another room. There's some PA system in this flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And suddenly she's just verbally abusing him over this PA system, just, you know, this humiliating, abusive, you know, slagging him off. Uh, and then uh, the next thing, they're in a billiard room together and she just picks up a pool cue yeah. and smacks him around the head with it. And he's just virtually unconscious. Mm. And then she kind of takes it, not well, putting it a bit strongly, but they finally have sex. The seduction, you know, she was trying to seduce him earlier in the film by sort of flirting. Mm. That didn't seem to work yeah. for Walker. <laughs> but smack him in the head with a pool cue. Yeah, yeah. that's the kind of foreplay I like, baby. I'll kind of do it, <laughs> I think 
as well. You you say you say flat, but they're, they're in this house, one of these sixties modernist yeah, houses, yeah, yeah. and it's not a set. It was actually a, a real ah, a real house ah, that was used. Okay. So it's one of these ones that's got kind of the big glass walls and the swimming pool yeah, and yeah, all mod corns. Yeah. And and that's important because at one point she goes into the kitchen when when she's like ineffectually kind of smashing her fists against his chest. I mean, she's about a foot smaller than yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's slapping him. I mean, he's just like yeah, this, yeah, this kind of yeah. statue, this rock, this bit of wood. He is. He doesn't move. He doesn't blink. He doesn't flinch. And she is bash, bash, bashing mm. him with her with her fists, with her with her open palms. Nothing is nothing's happening. So she runs into the kitchen. And so this is a, a house with all mod cons. She sets off all these mod cones until mm, there's this mm, cacophony yeah, of noise. Yeah, yeah. So the mixer, the blender, the coffee machine, she's burnt some toast in about two seconds flat, yeah, it must yeah, be said. Yeah. How did this toast get so burnt? I don't know. <laughs> but but she, she does all this. So he's going through kind of trying to find her in this house, which is like a maze of, of open rooms. Um, and it's a great scene. And the whole, the whole, there's a few kind of sequences based at this house and they're, mm. they're all, they're all brilliant. That house later on was owned by Drew Barrymore. Wow, <laughs> great fact. Great trivia. Great fact. I, could I mention at this point as well, before we do the next bit of plot, uh, because it still comes into the weird, another one of my favourite scenes, and uh, I don't know, unique, unique. So the only thing that sort of uh, kind of points up a journey is uh, Yost, this mysterious yeah, character, yeah. has basically said, oh, right, you know, Reese and Lynn, they're in LA, go get them. So the next thing we see is Lee Marvin walking very, very quickly through an airport terminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is one of the most incredible uses of visual, but also sound design. Yeah. Basically, he's walking really quickly. He's got great hair in this, quite short hair, and it's kind of flopping from side to yeah. side because he's walking so quickly. There's this impassive face. Um, John Borman made sure there was nothing in this corridor. Yeah. Uh, so it's been cleared. So there's nothing there except Lee Marvin and light. Yeah. And, but the thing is, his shoes, you can hear his shoes yeah. clicking, clacking, Cla clicking, cla clacking, cla clacking, yeah. clacking, clacking in this kind of astonishing way. It then cuts to his wife, Lynn, lying in bed and her waking up. And it's like she's been woken up by the sounds of Lee Marvin's footsteps coming from this airport. And then the, the footsteps keep going on and keep going on and keep going on until Lee Marvin kicks down her door yeah. and attacks her. And it's, it's just kind of like, what the hell? And this, oh, is what, wow. this is what made me think of Jaws because it's a... And this echoey sound in, in the um, airport, clack, 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 clack. And so it starts off diegetic, as we call it. It's in the movie world. It's happening in the world that the movie takes place. It then seems to be non-diegetic because his, his footsteps don't get any louder. They don't get any softer. They're at this very kind of even tone. So it's kind of like, and then we don't see him and we see his wife in the apartment and we still hear this same volume of clack, 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 clack. So it seems to me we're out of the movie world and now this is part of the soundtrack yeah. that only we can hear. Yeah. Although, as you say, she does yeah. seem warned by this somehow. And these these um, footsteps continue, as you say, without getting louder, without getting nearer, without getting softer, without getting further away, until clack, 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 boof, yeah. he's kicked open her door. Yeah. And it's kind of like he's click-clacked all the way from the airport. Yeah, yeah. 
with this incredible steady sound. Yeah. And it's, it, it, again, it adds to kind of the dreamlike aspect yes. of this film. Yeah. So the, the sound, the cutting, the timing, the editing, the kind of lack of link between locations, it, it all makes this mm. very, very dreamlike. And yet, it's incredibly violent. There's yeah, no kind yeah. of hearts and flowers dreams no, in this. It's, no. This is a violent dream. Yeah, yeah. It is a violent dream. So, shall I do the, the last yeah, bit of yeah, plot? Yeah, yeah, please do. Because um, I'm making it minimalist. Um, we always discuss a little bit about whether, um, you know, we have to do a spoiler in order to do the film justice. I'm going to try to avoid it because it is a great <laughs> ending. Um, Walker finds Reese who gives up the names of the men at the top of the organi crime organisation before he too dies. He dies by falling off a balcony. Um, Walker is heavily involved in this, but doesn't actually push him off the balcony. <laughs> um, as he tracks down the crime bigwigs, Walker avoids being shot by a sniper and goes to visit Chris, who is Lynn's sister. Chris is now in imminent danger, and as they hide out in the house of bigwig Brewster, Chris slaps Walker around, verbally abuses him over a PA system in the uh, scene that Lindsay described very well and smacks him over the head with a pool cue. This seems to be, as I said, a more agreeable seduction ritual for Walker than Chris's previous flirting and they sleep together. When Walker confronts Brewster, when he, he comes back to his house, he is told that his money is back in San Francisco because the syndicate's cash drop is now at Fort Point in San Francisco Bay. At Fort Point, accompanied by Brewster, an understandably suspicious walker hides in the shadows while the courier makes the cash drop. By the time the smoke clears, one man is dead and another turns out to be the criminal mastermind that we absolutely did not expect. An offer one can't refuse is made, but it is refused. And nobody appears to take the money which everyone was so keen on killing and dying for. <laughs> That's another, it's another kind of dream, dreamlike thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But it's also, I, I was sort of going to say, it's um, this is what gets it back to noir yeah. and the idea of a noir plot. It's a couple of the biggest classic noirs uh, were based on people questing for something that that had maybe no value whatsoever except as a symbol. The Maltese Falcon yeah, being the ultimate yeah. example. And that is sort of the same kind of thing that happens here. It's all supposed to be about this $93,000. Yeah. And nobody's bothered about yeah, it at yeah. the end, except the whole bunch of people are dead. Yeah. And um, it's, it's, there's a pan. Um, this doesn't give away the ending. There's a, uh, just a beautiful pan at the end because Fort Point. And is, by pan? Um, basically, the camera rises out of Fort Point, this building in San Francisco Bay, and rises up to the top of this. So you are looking down at the scene below and then turns right turns to the right and you're looking at Alcatraz. Right, yeah. And it's just so elegantly done. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, it's and that's not necessarily anything to do with the end of the film, although, of course, it brings it back to the beginning. Yeah. It makes it very circular, doesn't it? Yeah. He's, he's had all this travail yeah. and he's back where he started. And he's back where he started. But it's also just beautiful. There's an awful lot of this film. It, he John Borman does an incredible job of bringing incredible beauty out of Ugliness. I mean, this is this is not balletic violence like you know either Sam Peckinpah or Tarantino mm. are good at. This is brutal, grubby yeah. violence. Yeah, he still seems to find all these incredibly beautiful scenes in the yeah. midst of midst of this, and it's it's just a unique piece of directing. Yeah. 
Um, it, it does look great. And Lee Marvin looks great. His yeah. his suits are amazing. I hadn't noticed when you said earlier he's in one suit and then he's in another yeah. suit. Um, but his his as you say his his charisma is just is just incredible. Um, the whole question of is he dead or isn't he? The, the the film addresses it all the way through. People say to him so often, "I thought you were dead." Didn't I hear you were dead? At one point, a waitress says to him, Walker, are you still alive? And he says, I don't know. I mean, he genuinely doesn't know yeah, what yeah. is what is happening. But So the, the film kind of addresses this head on, the notion of whether this is real or whether it's not. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, th- there's a lot of really fascinating flashbacks because as Lindsay was saying, it jumps about in time. Yeah. So it's kind of pre-Tarantino and post Alain René, mm, you know, mm. so he's, he's obviously taken a lot from René's kind of a time shifting, yeah. which is, was his speciality in things like Hiroshima and Mon Amour. Mm. But because of the look of the film, the gangster sort of thing, it's definitely very pre-Tarantino. Yeah. You, can, you can feel Reservoir Dogs particularly yeah, in, in yeah, Point yeah. Blank. And um, there's these this incredible scene where there's two scenes, again, that I, I think are just extraordinary in, in cinema. One is... A flashback to Reese and Walker seeing each other again after a long time having not seen each other. And they're in this, it's never explained why they're in the middle of this ridiculously crowded party. New Year's Eve or something, maybe something. But why it's full of men. It's all men in suits. There there are no women in this room. It's just all men in suits. And um, it's so packed that literally no one can move. And they have to fight. They see each other and they greet each other like lovers. They see each other across the crowded room. There's this joy in both of them. And they are literally a mixture of swimming and punching their their way through this crowd of men Mm -hmm. to get to each other. Um, And there's also, you know, a moment right at the beginning, I think it's quite close to the beginning of the film, where Reese is asking Walker to do this job with him, this heist, asking involves him begging, screaming in Walker's face, you've got to do this, you've got to help me, and then punching him to the floor and then climbing on top of him until it almost looks like they're going to have sex and go, you've got to help me, you've got to... Uh, Just So there's something about the triangle between Reese and Lynn and Walker, which is erotic and sexual on some level and is also kind of another beautiful scene a beautiful beautiful scene is lynn and there's actually another scene about this as well because it's brilliant on john Portman's part to explain this um lynn is talking to walker about when they first met and suddenly we get a flashback of their first meeting and uh, apparently walker works on the docks at the time or he's a sailor or a, a fisherman or something and so there's music and her voice describing, you know, what was going on. But we're not seeing them talk to each other. What they do is they dance around each other and do a mime. So they, it's Walker and his mates, you know, presumably his sailor mates, and her, why on earth she's in the middle of this dock, we, you yeah, know, we yeah, don't yeah. know, looking kind of really, you Yeah, know, wearing like a white dress a or A white dress yeah, yeah. looking like she's in a dinner party kind of thing. And they do this, you know, mutual seduction based on looking at each other and dancing around each other yeah. in this kind of elegant yeah. kind of I don't know what a mind seduction I guess it, it's kind of like you just reminded me actually with the, with the dancing because it's really 
you know, he's he's not saying anything. He's just kind of laughing and smiling and yeah. and turning on the charm. And she's kind of charmed by it, despite the fact she's surrounded by like twenty guys at the docks. But nonetheless, yeah. Yeah. she's she's charmed charmed by him. But it 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 is like a musical, isn't yeah. it? It's like a musical interlude. You can imagine there isn't there isn't there isn't a song and dance. They, it's not specifically that. It's it's mm. very dreamlike again. But you can imagine like in um, uh, French musical with Catherine Deneuve. Uh, umbrellas, uh, umbrellas of Cherbourg. Of Cherbourg. Yeah. That that kind of a, a musical interlude that that yeah. might happen. Yeah, and it's really. But what's really interesting about the way she's telling that is one. It really reminded me again of Airplane, where the stewardess <laughs> yeah. is talking oh, no. about how she met Ted Stryker, <laughs> and and it's this kind of yes. idealized version of their of their meeting. Yes. Oh my god. But secondly, while this is happening, Walker and Lynn are sitting side by side on a couch. He is staring straight ahead. He doesn't ask her any questions. She is just saying this whole thing and she and then she stops and she says, oh, well, you might say that blah, blah, blah. And he hasn't said anything. It's like we're having a one-sided conversation. He's not even looking at her. He's staring straight ahead. And what that reminded me of was the sixth sense when uh, Chris, yeah. Chris Willis has been dead for a month and hasn't noticed his <laughs> wife has not said a word to him in a month. It, it's that kind of thing. And that just leads to the kind of... Is this scene real or, or, or is it not? I'm so glad you brought that up because that is an, another great thing that comes out of the commentary. So, yeah, L- Lindsay's exactly right. This is, he's, he's broken into the house. He's talking, he's supposedly grilling her about what's yeah. happened, except he isn't. <laughs> yeah. He's not saying anything. And she is asking the questions and then answering yeah. them and then asking the questions he would want to, to ask and then answering them. And he's just sitting there looking in a mixture of impassive and broken. And I, John Borman explains, and he says, we were rehear- literally, we were rehearsing the scene. And a whole script was written for, for Lee yeah. to say things. And Lee just sat there. <laughs> and the actress, um, Sharon Acker, is that Yeah, right? that's right, yeah. Um, basically kind of, Went okay. Well, I've got to keep going. So she started saying. <laughs> she started saying her lines. Lee Marvin just kept sitting there, and she and John Bowman said. So that was all his idea. Yeah. I watched it and I just said, "That yeah, is absolutely genius. brilliant." And and he said, "The thing is with Lee, and I should point at this point, they were friends, close friends until Lee Marvin's death. Um, so he really pays tribute to Lee Marvin on yeah. this commentary because there's obviously love there yeah, as opposed yeah. to just." admiration as an actor and um he said lee never never said to you never told you an idea yeah he just just show it to you he'd show it to you and then you went yeah okay or no but he said that one was one of the most yeah it was just yeah yeah let's do it that way so they rewrote the script there and then so she was asking the questions and then answering as as well and it's just strange and beautiful once again I mean, he was he was quite a bench, a mensch, wasn't he? He's, yeah. He he often played the heavy. He was in a lot of war films, despite his kind of anti-war stance. But there were some things he did he did turn down. Did a mm. lot of westerns. Mm-hmm. He won his only Oscar for a western piece of fluff, a, a musical comedy western with Jane Fonda called Cat Baloo. Yep. Where he plays two parts. He plays like a drunken gunfighter, and he plays this evil 
uh, kind of baddie who's got mm. no nose, and he won. Um, he won an Oscar. He was the only apparently so far. He's the only person to have won an Oscar for playing a double part. Although ah. plenty of people have been nominated. Uh, Nicholas Cage was nominated for adaptation, I think. Oh right. Mel okay. Ferrer was nominated for another kind of double part. Okay. He's, he's the only one. He's the only one who's who's won. Um, oh, so could I just say you, you gave me a brilliant piece of trivia the other day about oh yeah so he's one of only six people is it this one yeah one of only six people who's won both an acting Oscar and had a UK number one hit <laughs> <laughs> and if it, you you may well not know what you, Lee Marvin it, it, it's okay so the song is called I was born under a wandering star. <laughs> It was number one for what felt like 20 years. Yeah. In, I think it was 1970 or 71, one or the other. Yeah. This was a moment where, you know, T-Rex, Stevie Wonder, James Brown, you know, uh, you know, were, were uh, around in the world. The Rolling Stones, the Beatles hadn't quite split up yet or, and still putting records out. And the British were buying... <laughs> I was born under a wandering star. It's awful. It's a record of astonishing awfulness. But there is something wonderful now about the fact, because I didn't know who Lee Marvin was at the time. I was seven. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, all I knew is T-Rex weren't number one, and I was yeah. just really pissed off. But now I just think, oh, what a wonderful thing. Like, there's also another so song in that. It was Paint Your Wagon was one of the films. For some reason, Hollywood in the 60s, I don't know if you, you probably all know this, but Hollywood committed this sort of slow suicide in the 1960s by after the sound of music was this massive hit mm. just putting out huge <laughs> lavish musical after huge lavish musical it all of which were directed by inappropriate people starred inappropriate people and were absolute financial disasters yeah. and paint your wagon i think was the one that virtually killed off old hollywood and allowed basically yeah. you know coppola and and yeah. spielberg yeah. and everybody else to kind of take over robert evans you know it it was an absolute monstrous disaster and it also had Clint Eastwood uh, singing a song called I Talk to the Trees oh, but right. they don't listen to me well I wish I couldn't listen to that song <laughs> um, he, he uh, Lee Marvin actually turned down the role of Dirty Harry and Death Did Wish he? Yeah. and yeah. Death Wish and Death Wish wow. but he was uh, Spielberg's first choice to play Quint in Jaws no and didn't go way. for that yeah, yeah. oh that's fantastic trivia yeah. I had no clue of that. So, I mean, he worked pretty wow. steadily from 1950 till his death in 1987, I think it was. Right. He worked pretty steadily, did a lot of TV work, uh, a lot of played policemen, played, played cowboys, played um, soldiers. Mm. Uh, but he had he had a great kind of big break in 1953 when he was in both The Big Heat, which is like yeah. a key film noir, yeah. and also uh, The Wild One, uh, Marlon Brando's teen exploitation. He, he plays the that? main the main baddie in that. Yeah. And and both those films really are a kind of I'm here and I'm bad. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good. I'm a good actor, but What's I'm What's the I'm famous a bad... scene in the big heat, isn't it? That sort of that he does something violent to a yeah. woman. Uh, it, it, yeah. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm trying to get not get mixed up with Jimmy Cagney yeah, putting the, the grapefruit yeah. in the face. It it's but it's something uh, yeah, he does something to to Gloria Graham, I think, in that film. Yeah. Uh, doesn't he throw acid or something in her face? Oh, it's not that bad, is it? Well, it's something he disfigures her. This is how is she Ooh, gets involved. Is it that bad? I think so. Oh, we'll need to. We should have. We should have checked. We should have checked that out. Anyway. Lee Marvin, though, bad, bad, yeah. bad guy. Bad guy, but but great actor, and yeah. and um, his wife was Joan Crawford's kid's nanny before they married. <laughs> 
Uh, Where do you went, find this stuff? It's fantastic. Uh, he won a Purple Heart in the Marines. And yeah. my last bit of trivia about him is that um, you may know the term palimony, which is money that is given often to a woman in yes. a relationship where they haven't been married. This wasn't a thing before his girlfriend, who he wasn't married to, oh, took him to court and I... sued for palimony, sued for half of his earnings for the six years that they were together. That's a brilliant she piece didn't, of... She didn't win, uh, but... but the, the kind of the, the case, precedent was set. The precedent was established. Wow, I, I think I did know that somewhere in the recesses of my mind. But that's yeah, Lee Marvin was just um, a weather vane for stuff. Yeah, he's just one of yes. those guys that just seemed to be in the centre of stuff, but somewhere separate from it in the. And that seems a very key thing. He was offered Dirty Harry, the protagonist from mm. Death Wish, and Quint, mm. and somehow went. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Um, although it's very hard for me to imagine Quint being anyone but Robert Shaw. I know. Now. It's, but, well, I mean, Jaws is unimpeachable. It's unimprovable. Yeah. Yeah. Not even Lee Marvin could have improved that. And, you know, I say that as a staunch feminist and, you know what, it's not really interested in any woman at all uh, in that film. Mm. Nonetheless, for me, Jaws is a 10 out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're not really scoring jaws. We should no, score no, point blank. No, no, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, before we sort of uh, get to uh, the end, um, uh, I did want to mention, um, apart from uh, the fantastic piece of music that I'm mentioning from Stu Gardner, um, there's a really great score by Johnny Mandel, and Johnny Mandel was a very, very accomplished and consistent uh, film performer, and it's he finds a fantastic tone for this film, which is a sort of mixture between kind of left field jazz and old school thriller music mm. and it just sort of sits in the middle of those yeah. two things and it's really haunting and evocative and it's great if you've never heard of Johnny Mandel probably his most famous thing is that he wrote Suicide is Painless oh. uh, the theme from MASH uh, which okay. Manic Street Preachers had a number one with many years later um, and the other thing I wanted to mention was just uh, about the, the success of the film um, it wasn't seen as a huge hit but it was obviously critically acclaimed straight away right at the time um it cost two million dollars to make wow. which you know at the time was actually quite a lot of money to throw at a first well mm. it wasn't a first time director but a first time director in america yeah. uh but it made nine million wow. so you know it did okay and essentially it set up deliverance you know it set up this was the guy that was on his way mm. to deliverance which was a huge critical and commercial hit mm. and still a definitive film about men lost in a yeah. world they don't understand. Um, and, yeah, point blank, that, that, that is it. So, Lindsay, what are you thinking about? What, how are we going to mark? Pool cues. Pool cues. Yeah, okay then. So out of 10 pool cues for quality, out of 10 pool cues for weird. Okay. Uh, 10 pool cues for quality and... Nine, 9.5 for weird. I can't I quite bring myself to give anything 10 and 10. But uh, yeah, 10 and 9.5. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. It's weird ass. It's great. It's like nothing else. Yeah. And Lee Marvin was like no one else. Absolutely. Um, I hope you've enjoyed us talking about Point Blank. Um, don't be too existentialist uh, after this. Um, and uh, uh, see you next time. Till next time. What's Wrong With This Picture is brought to you by Lindsay McCulloch and Gary Mulholland and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg.
Music composed and performed by Russ Kettle.